the Gospel of John and from the lips of Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not... I, would I have told you that I go, go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. This morning, I want to sort of set the table for our communion by reflecting upon a gospel passage. You're very familiar with the verse that I just concluded with, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. But perhaps you're not as familiar with the context and sort of lead-in to those famous words spoken by Jesus. Jesus gives sort of a chief gospel verse or phrase there in verse 6. But what sets the table for that verse is his heart to comfort the men he loved most dearly. It was the night of Passover and he's got his men his ambassadors, his missionaries, his soulmates in front of him. And I'm going to show you from the context that he is dying inside. Jesus has a deeply troubled heart at this very moment. And instead of him choosing to ask for comfort from his disciples, he turns the comfort towards them. That's the lead-in to verse 6. As you know, uh, Judy and I have been away. She was away for two weeks plus, and I was away for one week, uh, comforting family members and grieving the loss of my father-in-law, Judy's father. And it was a very um, dramatic and sort of sobering and joyful time all mixed together, as most funerals can be. You have times of uh, apex joy with family and friends you haven't seen in a long time. And then you have deep sort of rip your heart open grief and you have everything in between. So it was a very emotional time, but it was a good time to be there and be with family. And to consider what sort of I said before I went, which is that funerals sort of bring you to the crossroads of eternity and what matters most. It's a very dramatic time. Judy's dad was a police chaplain for a couple decades and served many um, families of fallen officers around the Northeast. And so a lot of people were coming back to um, sort of give back to him and give back to the family at his funeral. It was sort of a, 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 a they would have a guard designated by the coffin, um, you know, during the funeral time. You had sort of the changing of the guard, a police brigade. Um, a, a motorcade came over from Maine five, six hours driving to honor him and, you know, had a flag, you know, folding ceremony at the end, at the interment. It was a very powerful time. I was asked to, right, right as I sort of was coming, I was asked to preach, and this is what I preached uh, while I was there. 
And it was, a, it was a wonderful time to be with um, all kinds of people. You had believers, you had unbelievers, you had Bible teachers from Word of Life Bible Institute, which is where the funeral was held. You had um, just an amazing mix and conglomeration of people. So it was a good opportunity to think about the gospel, to think about encouraging people, encouraging my mother-in-law, encouraging family members, and, enc- and giving the gospel to people that needed to hear Christ. And what was interesting is that the sort of spiritual and supernatural elements didn't end in New York, but when Judy and I were flying back, you know, as often happens, but I don't want, I, it's like it's so stereotypical, I almost don't want it to happen. I get into gospel preaching or witnessing opportunities on the plane. I don't mean for them to happen this way, I'm not trying to do that, you know, but uh, it just happens. I begin to talk to people, and some people want to hear about Jesus, and then some people don't. Well, one person didn't, and then one person very much did. And this guy that was sitting next to me on my left, and Judy was to my right, he was all tatted up, and he was a tattoo artist from Tennessee coming here to hunt in Soldatna. And so, you know, we're, we're connecting on all kinds of Alaskan levels. And, you know, I mean, he was just, a, he was an amazing personality, and he sort of wore his, uh, you know, um, piercings and, and tattoos well. And it was just, you know, it didn't make any difference to me. I just wanted to get to know the guy, and it was fun. And so we're talking, but he said, what, what brought you to New York? And I told him, and he said, it's interesting, you know, you just lost a loved one because I just lost my wife six months ago. And it was sort of cancer, four days later, she's dead. And so he just was, was wide open to me to receive the word and to hear about Christ. What was interesting as well is his sons-in-law are believers, and one of them, this guy named TJ, had been sowing all kinds of gospel seed in his heart. And so some sow, and then I think I was called in to bring a, a hose of water and water the seed that was there. He didn't profess faith in Christ then, but he, from a Jewish background, was sort of Nicodemus, John 3, you know, what do I have to do to be saved? And talk to me about this. And so I was sowing seed and watering seed in his heart and basically saying, listen, you're so receptive, but you're not yet believing. You're not far from the kingdom, and I'm encouraged. I, I'm not discouraged that you're not all the way over because the Spirit of God has to ultimately open your eyes, and then there'll be belief, and that's what I believe for you. So we had a wonderful time in the gospel. And so all of that sort of prompted me to say, I'm going to take this week and sort of re-meditate on John 14 and then give you my heart on that this morning. John 14, Jesus is comforting his disciples in his greatest time of need for comfort. Why did he need comfort? Well, he had just predicted, and John 13 attests to this, that Judas Iscariot was going to um, sell him out. And he's saying, look, the one who dips the bread, you know, the morsel of bread, that's the one. And the disciples are confused in that moment. You can read about it later. But he's predicting the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. He's saying in verse 27 of chapter 13 that Satan entered into him. John is talking about this, that Satan is entering into one of his disciples' hearts in that moment. Jesus loved his disciples, and so this would be very heart-ripping for Jesus, even though he knew the plan all along. And then 
He's also saying, listen, I'm not going to be with you very much longer. And his disciples are confused by that. They're talking about, we'll go with you. And, and he's saying, no, you can't go with me. I'm leaving you. So that's also part of this moment. He calls them in verse 33, his little children. He, he loves them as believers, as baby Christian believers. All but Judah sitting there. He loves them and he's leaving them. Okay, that's the grief of funerals, right, is, is I'm leaving you. That's what's going, it's dramatic. And then Peter says, no, no, I'm, I'll, I'll go with you to the death. I mean, and Jesus says, it's not going to be the case. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. I mean, everything about being associated with Jesus is saying, my, I've signed my name on the dotted line. I'm here with you. I get it. Um, Peter had said, thou art the Christ. I mean, he got it. He understood. But, but there's this, you know, it's one of Jesus's best friends, and he's having to let him know, no, you're, you're going to deny me three times. So it's a very dramatic moment, and Jesus begins to address this drama with this phrase, let not your hearts be troubled. Do you have trouble in your spirit this morning? I do. It's okay to have trouble in your spirit. Most of us often are troubled in our spirits. No matter where you are on the maturity scale, there's trouble of soul, there's dynamics, there's circumstances that are going on, some that we know about, some that we talk about, and others that we don't. And there's trouble of spirit. It's a condition of the soul. It's part of human living. It's whether you're saved or unsaved, you have trouble in your spirit at times. And Jesus gives the remedy to a troubled heart. How do you address the hole in your heart this morning? Well, he says it here. Verse 1, believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe. Now, these were believers, minus Judas, but these were believers. But he's saying, look, okay, you've got the gas pedal down of belief halfway down. I'm saying, put it to the floor right now. Believe more. Believe. Believe more. You've believed in God. You have the, the right through Christ, God. Now, put the gas pedal down and believe more. You need comfort? Believe more. That's what he's saying. Believe, or faith, as a word in the original language, is used 90-some-90 90 90 times in this gospel. It's amazing. It's a faith or believe or believing is used over and over again in this gospel. And the point of this gospel is to believe that Jesus is God. That's what John was doing. Jesus is God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's right in this same chapter. Believe in God. Believe also in me is what Jesus said. Believe in me and you've believed you get it. You're, you're in the door. You're, you're, your foot's in the door. You're on the narrow path. Now believe more. And there's comfort in that. There's comfort in that for the child of God. I like to maybe substitute the word see for believe. And I do that because of the theology and teaching in Scripture of illumination. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and gives us the gift of faith, and we see Jesus 
as he's presented in the word through the eyes of faith and we are embracing him. That's what it means to be born again. We go, bing, Jesus is Lord and we believe in God. And what Jesus is saying now is exercise that gift of belief and see me more. See more of me. See more of who I am claiming to be. See me at Passover as your Savior and as your God. And you will have comfort. So it makes sense of all of life. It's hard. It's difficult. We stumble around and we come to the crossroads of we need to believe in God and believe more. That's the point. Now, I stole all of this from J.C. Ryle if you want to read his commentary and on uh, John 14, it's, he's an amazing um, sort of Puritan preacher and great guy to, to read. Believe more. Now, what does he want them to believe specifically? He wants them to believe about God and Jesus in the context of heaven. He wants their hearts not just to go here to Christ, but to go up to heaven. And that's comforting. There's sort of a context for comfort in believing in God, and it's heaven. And he gives here five simple truths about heaven that we're going to just look at. We'll just sort of scroll through and, and look at here. The person, for, um, by the way, Isaiah 26, 3 through 4 says, the person who's got their mind stayed on Christ finds perfect peace. So let's find perfect peace as we embrace simple truths about heaven. It's a little window into what heaven is like here in John 14. By the way, um, this isn't, you know, detailed stuff. This is very simple, very basic, very Sunday school-like truths that could be taught and should be taught to preschoolers or younger. And yet, this is what we hang on to when we lose people or when we need heaven. We don't want it to get too complicated, right? Very simple. Number one, heaven is a father's house. It's the father's house. He says in verse two, in my father's house. This isn't to trivialize heaven. This is to say that heaven is home. You want comfort about this world? Let's think about heaven being home. Now, not everybody's home life was great. Not everybody's home is is warm and comforting, but it's supposed to be. The picture of a warm home is a beautiful thing. It's where you are known explicitly. Everybody knows you. Everybody should be forgiving your faults in that context. It should be a very safe environment, a very enjoyable environment, a very comforting environment. It's the kind of place where you've got your room and it's a little messy, but it's under managed control and it's comfortable that way, right? You know, we, uh, we've grown up with all kinds of interesting furniture. Being a father of six kids, I've watched all kinds of newness turn to old, you know, very quickly. And one of our early furniture pieces was this massive couch that was just oversized and awkward. And I forget how I arrived at owning it, but we threw a big green couch cover over it. And all I could do growing up was think, when can I replace this couch? When can I get it out of here? I don't like it. At the same time, it was very comfortable to be in this couch. And my kids, as we had babies, loved this couch, and I didn't know it. And so one day, we got rid of that couch, right? We got rid of it, and suddenly, we, it was like trauma in our family. And my, Logan was saying, Dad, why did you get rid of the couch? I can't believe it. I'm going, what is this? And it was that I was upending his comfort. 
which is home. That couch is home to him. He liked the smelly, stained-up couch cover couch because it was comfortable. It's home. And our couch today, we, we kind of got a second couch that was leather and nice and, and beautiful. And Judy gave it to me as a birthday gift and this whole thing. And it's been so thrashed that it, we now cover holes in duct tape. And so we call it the duct tape couch. And you can see it right, you know, this afternoon if you want to come by and, you know, pay respects to the duct tape couch. It's just there. But it's home. And if that couch goes away, it will leave an empty spot in the hearts of my children. Because they love that couch, the duct tape couch. And, and heaven, and I'm not trying to sort of overly humanize heaven or, or denigrate what the Lord's talking about, but it's the Father's house. It's a place where you are not unfamiliar to, and it's not unfamiliar to, to you. It's a comforting, welcoming place. And it's also a place, secondly, that has many rooms. Many rooms. Perhaps Jesus meant that there's place in heaven, there's a room in heaven for everyone that will believe, that will come through Christ. There's many rooms, so every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are welcome there if they come through Christ. And there's room there. You're not going to be iced out of heaven. You're not going to be sent away from heaven. It's an open place. You know, this world that we have is called a sort of a, a temporary place. Hebrews 13, 14. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. When you think of heaven, you should think of, that's my place forever. One day the tent pegs are going to be pulled up here, and I'm going home, and I'm out of transition. Alaska is one of the most transient places in the world, I think. I mean, people just come and go, you know, and visit and leave. It's a vacation spot, and, and, and it's transient. Well, the opposite of that is heaven. It's forever. It's eternal. Something comforting about knowing that you're not in transition anymore. You've landed there forever. It's how we cope in this life with the topsy-turviness of our circumstances. We're going to one day land in heaven forever. You know, I was thinking of uh, 2 Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or you can look at the screen either way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, talking about his body as an earthly tent, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. There's that Romans chapter 8 groaning for the effects of the fall to be over, the pain to be gone, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more crying, no more dying, no more demons, right? Heaven, it's perfect. It's without those things. We groan for that, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, look at this, but that we would be further clothed. I love that. It's a very profound way to put on or to put out the idea of the resurrection body. It's not that we're going to become immaterial or unphysical. Heaven is a very physical place. The new heavens and the new earth is going to be here and in the satellite city above. And we're going to eat food and we're going to be physical people like Jesus in the resurrection. He was physical. We're going to be physical, but we're going to be further clothed, glorified without the encumbrances and hindrances of sin. 
That's what he's talking about. Further clothes so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Talk about the essence of heaven is having life. It's 1 Corinthians 15 as well where we throw off what is perishable and put on the imperishable. Where death no longer has sting or hold on us. We are free in heaven as worshipers of him. Well, thirdly, Jesus, or Christ, goes as our forerunner to heaven. And that's what he's saying. He says, if it were not so, second part of verse 2, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He says, look, heaven is uh, the Father's house. It's a real place. It's got many rooms. It's got one with your name on it. And if all of this was just pretend, then why would I go there? But Jesus is going there. What's important for you to understand with that statement is how he's going to get there. You got to remember, he didn't just sort of, you know, float away into heaven right off, right? He, he went to his death first. He was going to drink the cup of God's wrath on your behalf. And so he went to an old rugged cross 2,000 years ago on your behalf, was, was slain, was murdered, and gave his spirit to the Father as he was dying, drowning in his own asphyxiation, suffocating on the cross, bleeding out on the cross. That's how he went. He went as the sacrifice for our sins. That's how he went. But you know what? When he died, he rose again and was raised at the right hand of the Father. And there's this sense of, of sort of this priestly work where Jesus is coming as our forerunner to plant a flag in glory on your behalf. That's what he's saying. He's, he's gone there and he said, look, Father, I'm, I, I'm taking this person and that person and, and this crowd of, of people and, and I'm giving them to you so that you can have their names being written in the Lamb's book of life as the forerunner. As, as a priest, he, he did this for you and for me. And so he's going to prepare the place for us. That's how, that's how tangible heaven should be. It, it, you know, as you think about, you know, a vacation, you ever get, you know, money is set aside and you get the plane ticket bought and it's, you know, it's going to get really cold and dark here and I'm getting out this year, right? I mean, some of you are resonating with that and you're going, yeah, you know, I know in January I'm going. And so my heart lifts and sort of lives for that. This is an awesome Alaskan illustration that's coming to my mind right now. But it is, it is actually a great picture of how we should think about heaven. I'm getting out. I'm going ultimate outside. And that's heaven one day. And I get to be there. And my room is set up. And it's warm. Right? I mean, you think, man, that's where I'm going. Because Jesus set it up that way for us. It's not a strange place to us. Turn over in your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews. I want to show you something from Hebrews 6. This is where this idea of Jesus being the priest and forerunner um, comes to the forefront. Hebrews chapter 6 is where the writer of Hebrews is talking about how assured heaven is for us. It's based on two unchangeable truths, two unchangeable things according to verse 18. One, God promises that we get to go there. 
He made an oath, just like he made an oath to Abraham, that he was going to make a great nation out of Abraham because of his faith. That's the context here. And it's a promise that it's going to happen. And then the second unchangeable truth is that God cannot lie. And that's the second part of verse 18. He can't lie about it. He made the promise. You're going to get there. We're anchored in our souls by this promise. We're going to get there. And God, whose character is unchangeable, is one who cannot lie about that. It is impossible for God to lie. And so then he builds the imagery here, verse 19, for we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. You see that Old Testament sacrificial system imagery where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's assured. It's guaranteed. It's, it's paid for. We're going to heaven as believers, as children of God. Back to John 14 again. So he, heaven is a father's house. It has many rooms. Christ goes as our forerunner. And then fourthly, Christ will come and take you there. I will come again and take you to myself. What an awesome promise. Jesus not only goes and waits for people who die to come to him, Jesus also promises to come back for us. So not only should we long for heaven in the future, but we should, I just want to say this, and not in a legalistic or, or sort of weird, you know, habituation of life sort of way, but I want you to think about building the regularity in your life of thinking about Jesus coming back today. I think that is very healthy. It's very John-like, John the, the apostle, like, um, you know, Revelation chapter 22, where he says, come, Lord Jesus. It's right after Jesus said, I will come again to you. It's the same word here. I'm going to come, and then John says, well, come. I'm going to come, and you say, come, and you want Jesus to return. Talk about cutting through a bad attitude or a grumpy day. You say, man, how can I have come, Lord Jesus, on my heart and be mean to people or feeling sorry for myself at the same time. It's incongruent. It's, it's great to want and anticipate Jesus' return because you, you want someone who you love most of all. He's going to bring his holiness. He's going to bring reform. And to want those things is very healthy in the Christian life. And it's comforting. Again, we're called to believe and then believe more. Gas pedal to the floor. Believing, Jesus, you could come right now and I want you to come. That's how you believe more about God. You want him to come. We already read earlier, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. We have hope. We have hope, amen? We have hope that Jesus is going to return, and that hope brings us comfort, verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. 
There's going to be that reunion, kind of like we experienced at the funeral, where you see people you haven't seen for a long time, but at center stage is Christ. The source of our satisfaction isn't the people that we're going to see. The source of our hope, first and foremost and preeminently and eternally, is Christ. And then the context is a context of the body of Christ and the relationships that are in Christ together as we all collectively, very healthily, enjoy Jesus together. Worshiping him. It's heaven. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. It's a good lead in for the last idea about heaven that Jesus gives. Heaven is where Christ is present. If there's anything else about heaven that you know about or have learned from reading about heaven or reading Revelation or reading Ezekiel 1 or Isaiah 6, other places that are windows into heaven, glimpses into what glory is like. If there's one thing you need to know about heaven, it's that Jesus is there. One of the most convicting thoughts or concepts I ever read was another one from J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness. And he basically, I'm paraphrasing, he says, look, there's people who believe they're going to heaven who want nothing to do with heavenly things here on earth, and I don't get that. Why do people believe they're going to heaven if they have no appetite for Jesus this end of heaven? Sort of very scary and convicting to meditate on that, but it is true that we should examine our appetites. We should want Jesus. We should want Jesus' return just like we want heaven because heaven at center of heaven is Jesus. It's being with Jesus, your brother, your high priest, your intercessor, your Lord, your shepherd, the rock, the redeemer, the deliverer, the God-man, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and mine, the sin of the world. Jesus, who is the reflection of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ enthroned in heaven, Surrounded by angelic hosts that are bowing down, saying, you, you, you were, you are, and you are to come. You're, you're eternal. That's Jesus. And we should want him now and want him as we look to heaven. He's the point of heaven. Well, now again, Jesus makes all these statements to his disciples, but he, he leads them somewhere. I want to just show you this in, in John 14. He leads them somewhere because, again, he wants them as his little children. They're already believers, but he wants them to believe more for comfort and really to solidify their faith. And I want to just say this to you. Some of you are probably sitting there as unbelievers still, and you don't necessarily know it. And I'm not saying that in judgment. I've got nobody in mind, I promise you. I'm just saying that there are people next hour who are going to get in the baptismal pool who are going to say you know I went to church all my life and I sat here and I thought I was a believer but I was just kind of neutral and blah and showing up but but then I the lights came on and I believed I saw I had spiritual sightedness and I became a Christian and one of the reasons why I wanted to preach this message was to lead us to this moment to ask you are you yet a believer because if you're not a believer, then church makes no real sense to you and you're not enjoying yourself yet. But to become a believer means that the vice grip of sin is gone. Sin no longer is dominating you. You have spiritual hope and you have a relationship with the Lord. And I think Jesus, though he's calling his disciples believers and children, he's wanting to solidify and seal people's faith here. And the way he does it is, 
perfect because it's Jesus, but watch how he does it. He says, and you know, verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. Now, from a physical standpoint, they don't know where he's going. They don't fully get it. They don't know the story yet. Um, they thought he was going to be sort of the new general, right, to take over the Roman Empire. Everything's been upended all of a sudden. Jesus is saying, not doing that, and I'm leaving. So they're kind of suspended in midair. And, they, and so Jesus sets them up to exercise faith. Thomas says in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We don't know. We don't get it. Jesus says, okay, now this is the moment where I'm going to, again, say, look at who you're talking to and see me as the Savior. That's where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is doing a couple things here, just like he's going to do with Philip a few verses later. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's saying, I am God in the room. He's, in essence, he's saying, look at me. Understand who you're believing in. See that I'm the Savior. That's what he's doing. And he's doing it in a unique way that's very important for the church to hear right now, and that is that he is the exclusive way to heaven. He's the only way. He's the only way. It is in vogue right now in the church at large to say, you know, yeah, Jesus is the only way. I get that. But all those people who are out there who've never heard the gospel, who are doing their, their best, they're, 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 they're at the height of sincerity and they're do-gooding and all that. You're not, you're not saying they're not going to heaven, right? I mean, that is very in vogue right now. There are books being written, articles being written. There are theologians who are compromising the gospel who are not exclusivist. They're inclusivist saying, look, we want to include people who get their kind of, you know, they get a pass because they're sincere believers in their religion, even if they don't know Jesus exactly. You're not going to condemn those people to hell. You're going to condemn that do-gooder to hell? Come on. Hell isn't even real to a lot of people today. But Jesus is saying, no, he is the exclusive way to heaven. It's through Christ. And if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you have to believe that someone who's out there in a place where they wouldn't normally hear the gospel, if God is saving that person and wants to draw that person, then he's going to send his missionary there so that that person hears the gospel. And I'm not putting myself on a platform. I mean, this is how we all should think. I, I sat next to that guy on the plane for a reason. How shall they hear unless people are sent, right? If you don't believe in missions work and an exclusive one way to heaven gospel, then we need to call all the missionaries home, right? We need to not tell people so they'll get more grace, right? No, we tell people and that is the grace of God in people's lives to be hearers of the word, and become doers to be transformed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Romans 1, it says that all in creation, everyone that sees creation is exposed to and encountering the invisible attributes of God. God is speaking through his creation himself to them. And as God changes people's hearts, as they see him through creation, 
a missionary comes, a preacher comes, an iPodcast comes, the, on the internet or otherwise, someone comes to them and shares the gospel. They read the gospel and they see Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven. And that person is saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Let me just read one other just part that I'm kind of paraphrasing. and it is, It's Romans chapter 10. Paul put this very beautifully. Verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Reminds me of Acts 4, verse 12. There's no other name under heaven given amongst men where someone can be saved. It's only through knowing Jesus. In verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Got to have preachers. We're not just talking about the preaching post like I'm doing here. We're talking about people who will herald the message around the world. Children, teenagers, adults, elderly, men, women. You got to speak the truth. You speak it and it's seed spitting out of your mouth and then people get saved. It happens. How will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. I mean, Paul ties this together with Isaiah the prophet saying, look, this has always been the emphasis of the whole Bible. It's preaching, and then there's faith by hearing. It's why we give to missionaries. It's why we send people. It's why we do what we do. It's why we talk to neighbors. It's why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. I've got, you know, a neighborhood opportunity where, where kids come from my neighborhood relationships to Awana, and it's people that we're not even inviting to Awana, but we're friends with people who invite other people to Awana here. It's crazy how the Lord works in his kingdom dynamic but it's all part of being ambassadors for Christ listen if you don't know Christ exclusively as your savior you're not going to heaven you get that that's what I'm saying make no mistake it's only through Christ aren't we glad it's through Christ and him alone it's totally satisfying totally the greatest person that you could ever know the God man He is the shepherd. He's the one who fills our hurting, troubled hearts as we believe in him and God, and Jesus is God, and we believe in him more. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for this time of communion that we can worship you by reflecting on the gospel.